So welcome everybody to a new episode of The Solar Journey. And uh, our today's guest is in Australia. Um, it's Simon Chow. Um, welcome, Simon. Welcome. Thank you, Torsten. Nice yeah. to be here. Yeah. So, uh, so he's in Australia. I'm in Germany. Um, eight hours different. Uh, first, first international guest. So, uh, th thanks a lot for making this happening. Um, uh, I'm not up at four o'clock in the morning like you. So yeah. It's fine with me. <laughs> so we both have met, um, uh, but we know uh, both uh, Jason Nutter. He's uh, one of the co-founders of the Solar Journey. Um, um, so he put us in contact and uh, Jason said that you should be a, a great guy to talk to when it comes down to the aspect of selling solar. Um, no matter if it's a large power plant or uh, small rooftop systems. Um, um, yeah, you know everything about uh, solar, selling solar electricity, um, operation and maintenance contracts and uh, how to sell them. Um, but before we all go to these these questions or subjects, let me just uh, sketch out uh, the the CV of of Simon. So uh, um, yeah, so right now he's the, the a business development manager for Canadian Solar, one of the top ten solar module manufacturers worldwide. Um, he's got a bachelor in banking and finance, so he knows all about the the dollars. Um, he worked in banking in industry for, for eight years and he also ran his own show, a multimedia company for, for 10 years. And then in 2009, there was a switch to uh, the subject of sustainability. And in 2010, the switch within sustainability to solar, um, he started to sell PV, solar PV and services in, uh, in various functions since then. He never left solar. Um, uh, among other companies, he, um, he also worked for, for the multinational company Flex or Flextronics. So that's a gigantic company. But he also worked for smaller, medium-sized companies selling solar in, in Australia. Um, so he's a, he's a vast interest in, uh, interest in the scope of his, his work in, in solar. And uh, since 2017, He's been with the Canadian Solar, a Canadian-Chinese enterprise, and among, which is among the top 10 solar module producers worldwide. So uh, again, Simon, thanks for, for coming to, onto the show. That was a correct re recollection of your, your CV. Uh, thank you, Torsten. Uh, yes, uh, yes, that, that's uh, in summary and it seemed yeah. like forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, so like many people, I've changed my career over the course of the journey, as you yeah. point out, or solar journey. And uh, uh, my interests uh, initially through school and university was banking finance. And then yeah. uh, I, I, I found that that was not an industry I particularly enjoyed, but uh, it certainly gave me some great grounding into corporate structure and um, finance. Yeah. Um, and then from there into a uh, totally uh, different area of multimedia and import export of um, components and electronics. And um, that was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the switch really came about when I um, started having children and uh, contemplated okay. what I would like to do and sort of what sort of impact I'd like to have in this world and this life. And uh, 
you know, um, renewable and the transition of uh, renewable energy particularly um, has been of interest to me for now 10 years. But um, yeah. I guess it was just the, the questions I had in my own mind was what, what would I like uh, to be remembered for, if anything, apart from, right. you know, yeah. with my family uh, is um, something that I thought was, uh, became a passion for me and, and certainly something that I've enjoyed over the journey. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a challenging space, mm. but um, it certainly has, a, I, I believe, I'm in, in a place where we transition, the energy transition and, and, and formation through solar and other renewables is uh, really exciting. And um, um, I can't see myself ever retiring from this space. I really love this area and as challenging as it can be called, uh, we, you know, I'm sure you've heard the term, the solar coaster. Um, that's the journey, the ride that I'm on and um, I will continue doing it for as long as I can, I guess. So uh, yeah. yeah, here we are. Uh, and uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, the different types of companies I've worked for. So um, <clears throat> in that uh, sort of history, there's been a number of smaller companies, uh, Australian-based companies, national companies, and then international companies. Um, and the scope and size of the projects has changed from residential, which is really in, in terms of size, that's the rooftop of a household. Yes, yeah. residential, the market here in Australia is quite large. Um, but I was there very early on, um, working and talking to clients and, and helping households benefit with solar and then moved into um, commercial and industrial which is effectively small business uh, larger business and um, again that was more on the financial side of things to assist them to, yeah. to benefit from renewable yeah. energy um, yeah. okay. commercial how, how large are these systems sorry the the commercial um, solar systems um, is it the type of company? Yeah. Is it the type of customer yeah. you, you specify with uh, commercial, or is it the size of the system? <laughs> it's, it's strange, you know. Um, when I first started, of course, with residential, and then into what's called the SME market, small medium enterprise. Um, yeah. That effectively is it could be a, um, a person working from home uh, to a large factory premises. Um, anybody with a roof effectively that uses energy yeah. uh, that operates as a business. So, okay. um, you know, so the scale of those projects got larger as I gained more experience and the largest were probably around the uh, shopping centers, which are around two megawatt, mm -hmm. um, two megawatt thereabouts. Yeah. Two megawatts already. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's the maximum size. Right. And then you also um, now uh, also work for in, um, selling uh, industrial sized and utility scale systems. So um, yeah. it's an interesting path, solar. Okay. So, yeah. you know, we meet many people, we, we explore different opportunities. And um, as I sort of went through and progressed in my career, I, um, I discovered the, the large scale solar yeah. space which yeah. is effectively solar farms and utility scale yeah. uh, and, uh, those type of projects um, you know they range from maybe a hundred acres of uh, maybe 
10 megawatt, five megawatt, uh, up to um, the largest project we've been involved with is um, 255 megawatt. So All right. Yeah. So um, those numbers, when I start putting them into context, so, you know, there is one site that we're actually on right now, which has in excess 2 million solar modules on right. site. Yeah. Um, the length of the perimeter of the, of the property is around 16 kilometers long or the fence oh, yeah. fancy. Uh, and uh, the scale is huge. Yeah. You know, if you, you look at what you could put onto a household roof to, to the size that I'm talking about at 255 megawatt, um, it's a big difference. Um, yeah. but yeah, that, that's, that's where I've ended up, um, at this stage. And I will say that at this stage, because the journey never ends. And, um, I'm actually not selling the project so much as doing the operation and maintenance. So the projects are generally built by the yeah. time uh, I'm involved or they're in construction. And uh, we offer long-term contracts to actually service and operate the sites. So yeah. when you think about, uh, and just to use the example of a 255 megawatt size farm, there is around 1200 hectares of land that uh, needs to be maintained. Yeah. Uh, there is, I'm trying to think the number of inverters on site, probably around 80. Okay. 80, uh, um, oh my, that's the PC, PRMU. So, yeah, it's probably in excess of 140 inverters. 140 inverters, yeah. 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 So, what's roughly the, yeah, the investment volume for, for the 250 megawatt site, how roughly? Do you have a um, figure? Well, I didn't have the real numbers, but I'm assuming it's close to around nearly 300 million. 300 million, million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I guess the, the, it's a different market, of course, but um, yeah. in effect, it's still the same process or technology that's being used to generate power. Yeah. Um, solar voltaic, voltaic panels, modules, um, converting that energy into... Um, electrons and then going through transformers and down the grid the pipeline and being injected into the grid so it's the same principle it's just yeah. on a much larger scale yeah uh, but you know this journey i guess for everyone in this space if you've been in it long enough you tend to you, you tend to find out quite a bit about the market and um uh, i've always uh been interested in trying to learn more and yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I find that Australia as a, as a population, um, we have one of the highest penetrations of solar in, in the world. Um, one in five households have solar PV on their roof, yeah. which to me is fantastic. Um, yeah. And it really shows the benefit of solar to a country like ours. And the potential beyond this is really what I'm excited about too, is where do we go from here? So, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I guess the selling is really just the idea that you can communicate an idea to someone so that yeah. they can then look at it and say, this is worth my while to consider. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's why I like solar is that I'm not offering something that's not tangible. You know, yeah. when you talk about an energy system, you're actually talking about a benefit to that person directly. So they look at it and say, well, okay, well, I can use this energy 
in my yeah. household, in my business. Or in the case of a solar farm, it's actually a financial benefit. They look at it as a long-term asset and how they can turn those new electrons into actual dollars and cents through a power purchase agreement. Or yeah. in the case of a, an asset manager or a, a, an asset owner, it's the yields and returns per year that they look yeah. at. And the private household, maybe we can switch to the private households. So the penetration now in of solar in, for the private households is now pretty large, you said, compared to, to other nations in, in Australia. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't really done a comparison on the rest of the world, but I, my yeah, understanding is one that... One-fifth you know, sounds a lot, yeah. Well, you're in a country that has a very high uptake considering the amount of irradiation you have or sunshine yeah. compared to us. It's like, well, you know... Uh, I, I congratulate Germany for fantastic renewable energy policies, but um, we have the advantage of actually having sunshine here and uh, turning yeah. that into something that's beneficial. Yeah. Um, I was in Australia in uh, part of my degree in uh, mid nineties and uh, back then solar wasn't, uh, let's say it would have been popular. Everybody liked the idea, but it, w it was a little, um, there was a small market, right? And Australia took off only a, a few years ago. Um, could you could you illustrate why suddenly that big change happened now that suddenly Australia is one of the, the top countries for solar worldwide, particularly also in the, um, in the private households? How did that change yeah. come about? Because when I yeah. read about the, the the solar policies in Australia, you would assume the, the opposite, right? Because the, it, it sounds as if from governmental yeah. side, it's you know, it's uh, solar is not so popular, but it seems like <laughs> the the market does uh, the opposite of what uh, the policies is intended to to achieve. Well, there's been a policy in place for quite a long time now. I would suggest it's over ten years. Uh, the yeah. renewable energy target was in place uh, through a government, uh, Labor government. Uh, may even be the Liberal government before that, but um, they instigated a renewable energy target and incentivized that target with uh, a rebate, uh, okay. particularly for households. Uh, the initial rebate was quite a lot. It was around $8,000 from memory, um, which was if you were to install a solar system on your roof, you would receive a government rebate of $8,000. Okay. Um, but back then, a one kilowatt system or 1.2 kilowatt system was around $10,000 to install onto your roof. All right. Um, of which you'd get $8,000 back from the government. Okay. Wow. Uh, so that was a huge spike. Yeah. The problem, of course, is uh, with, with that sort of number and that sort of... Um, size system it's really not that effective you know yeah. 1.2 kilowatt power or, or solar system on your roof has the potential in australia maybe to generate four five kilowatt hours a day of energy yeah. uh, and most households in australia will use around 20. Yeah. Uh, the other side of this is the state-based uh, governments also uh, incentivized people to take on solar with these things called tariffs, which were uh, feeding tariffs that if you put onto your roof a solar system and you exported that energy back into the grid, 
you could get upwards of 60 cents Australian per kilowatt hour for that uh, energy you put back into the grid. Um, <clears throat> that, that incentive uh, sort of meant that you could potentially, depending on the size of the system, you could pay back very quickly the investment that you made in putting a solar on your roof. Yeah. Um, so that was the initial inertia. That was the sort of driving um, uh, demand for solar at that early stage. The government had actually put a lot of incentives in place. Yeah. Larger scale, they had this thing called the um, LGC, and, which is a large generation certificate. Um, uh -huh. And then you had the STCs. Uh, so beyond the $8,000, which didn't last for very long, they brought out this thing called the STC, which is a small trading certificate, uh, small generation. So every time you purchased a solar system as a residential customer, you would get uh, a refund from the government, uh, which was in the, in the, in the, um, in the terms of uh, something called an STC rebate. So... Uh, depending on the size of the solar system would depend on the number of certificates you'd get, um, which again subsidised the cost of um, solar in Australia mm -hmm. quite significantly. So um, over the years, the government has incentivised um, consumers to take on solar, yeah. uh, which meant that, you know, Although one kilowatt was not hugely effective as a, as a system size, um, there was quite a lot of people rushing to buy these one kilowatt systems because, you know, it was basically free. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it's a gigantic incentive, yeah. So I wasn't... Yeah. But the, yeah. Now we still have some rebates in place. The STC yeah. still exists. And, you know, on average... Um, after rebates, a solar system of four to five kilowatts will cost anywhere between three thousand to four thousand dollars. Yeah. In 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 cost to the yeah. consumer, and that's four to five times the size of the original solar systems that were first uh, designed and built and installed. Yeah. Uh, but they generate quite a lot of uh, uh, energy. In, in the renewable space. Um, I was trying to think if I had any numbers. Um, no, but we do see now that the energy load profile, the energy profile in Australia has changed because of this number of solar systems that have been installed in households. Yeah. So we have a duck curve now which shows that um, during the day uh, there is quite a lot of generation through or, or reduced demand for energy because of this uh, basically installed solar that's on uh, commercial roofs and and households yeah it's quite significant yeah so you have a over over noon you have a, a dip in the uh, yes consumption from yes uh, from so, the from the grid yeah. yeah yeah so i guess um one of the things that it's changed the market in Australia, we have this thing called the national energy market or national electricity market, which um, is a platform where people can trade energy. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, it had been supported by what was called baseload power, so power, coal-fired power stations generating, um, you know, quite a lot of energy via uh, a constant number. 
So, yeah. so their outputs don't really fluctuate that much. It's just that with the uptake of renewables, we've now seen a change in this market where you'll have uh, a spot market that has negative numbers now. So mm. in actual fact, uh, there's just too much production during those periods, particularly on the weekends where uh, you don't have manufacturing or any industry usage really. So you have uh, an actual negative price across Australia on the NEM for uh, energy wholesale energy yeah um but yeah. yeah look i think you know i guess i see this as a benefit but i also see it as a slight hurdle at this stage into how to manage power and in, in the future and how we actually look at solar and how it integrates into the australian energy market and um you know this is probably of interest to me is where do we where will this end up for Australia? Um, yeah. I imagine with Germany, you've had similar issues around uh, production and how you um, manage uh, renewables in terms of the energy loads and profiles. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this is this is where we uh, I, I see the exciting part of or the transformation of energy in Australia and solar as well. So. Yeah. Um, I guess if I was going to bring in another topic, it's around storage, um, because with this much energy being produced during the daylight hours, the question is, if it's not being used, what is happening and how do we manage this to shift the load towards the end of the day when uh, the profile, energy profile in Australia is that many people, we have this thing called peak demand, which occurs around the hours of 4 to 8 p.m. or thereabouts. This is why, because everybody's at home and cooking, preparing dinner. Is, is that the they reason? They come home from work. Yeah. Kids come home from school. Yeah. Everyone rushes to the kitchen, starts cooking, preparing meals. Perhaps yeah. people are using electric hot water and doing whatever things they may be doing, washing, dishwashing, whatever. Hot show it all happens sports. At the, yeah. Yes, it all happens yeah. at that point. And consumers, maybe TVs, games. Yeah. Um, what, what I see in terms of the energy transition in Australia is how best to manage that period and how best to actually, you know, there's this thing called energy security, uh, I guess, which is the concern that a lot of conservatives bring up around renewables. What if the sun's not shining? What if the yeah. wind's not going? What happens then? Yeah. Um, so really there is a slight gap in this energy profile that, is being addressed with storage, mm. um, both residential, commercial, and utility scale. Um, and I think when we get to the point of having cost-effective measures for storage, we'll see that renewables will completely take over the energy transformation. Yeah, and uh, does it require um, the right politics for that to remove legal barriers, or would you say the market will fix it all? And once the the cost for storage uh, just keep going down, then there will be an automatic shift to renewables in general, or? I feel that um, using the example of the government incentives that were in place for solar initially, yeah. we really need to have the same policies in place for electric uh, energy storage. Um, yeah. I was going to say electric vehicles because I feel that that's one where they could really make a difference. Um, 
quite a few years ago, I um, <clears throat> had a number of discussions with um, our research laboratory lab, CSIRO in Australia. Uh, yeah. And I'm speaking to a gentleman there who, his main purpose, research scientist, was around battery storage. And he said to me, and this is going back maybe six or seven years ago, he said, the way of the future is electric vehicles. The way to manage electric vehicles is to use them as a stored energy source. Okay. So not just an operation for a motor transport, it's actually their capacity in terms of energy stored. Um, and I'm seeing that's happening now, very early stages. I think um, I think Hyundai and Nissan have um, both introduced vehicles that you can then, provided you have the right inverter technology and battery management systems, you can plug them into your home uh, home grid or home um, um, network and then use that energy mm. instead of going and drawing on uh, the grid, which I find is uh, perhaps where I see things really working yeah. uh, for that peak shift or energy demand changing uh, and really supplementing and, 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 and giving all the renewables um, that opportunity to, to be more secure and say that this is how the future will look. Um, yeah. So... I feel that's really exciting, that particular yeah. technology. So how would that look like? So you have your car connected to the, to the grid and uh, over, over during phases of high solar production, um, the, the car would then um, store the energy and then uh, at later at night, you, you, they would then also work as a, as a uh, supply of energy as it's again still connected to or again connected to the grid after you came home from work for example is that the idea yeah yeah, yeah. that's in, in in simplest form i mean there's a lot of moving parts to to any type of solution but i guess from a consumer's perspective <clears throat> it would be that they could use their vehicle to drive to work and then at their work, they'd have an electric charging station there for their electric vehicles. And on their roof of that building that they're in, there'd be solar, which would then be used to charge their vehicles. Yeah. Uh, and on return from work back to home, they'd plug their vehicle in. And instead of drawing current from you know, their grid, they would be actually pushing current back in to yeah. the grid to, to supply the demand that they'll have with... TVs, heaters, hot water systems, whatever it might be, and cooking, of course, uh, yeah. during that period of peak demand. And then at the end of that, they'd either charge what we would call, and there is this thing called time of use in terms of metering that's done in Australia, yeah. um, at a lower rate to recharge the battery in the vehicle. And then, of course, start the process again in the morning. So that requires some, yeah, okay. That, that requires some smart billing system, right? So it's, it's you know, when you work, your, your employer might not uh, like, like to pay, pay your electricity bill. Um, <laughs> that would be, of course, nice to bring home electricity, uh, not only the shopping. Well, yeah, look, you know, I, I think that um, it's always hard to, I mean, it sounds obvious. It sounds like a very simple solution. Of course, there's so many moving parts to it and who's going to pay for what is probably yeah. one of the questions that you're asking. 
but it, this is in an ideal format and really what I'd suggest is that if we had a government that was proactive towards renewable and the transition yeah. and that they could see that electric vehicles as a way for consumers to buy into the idea of storage and uh, reducing carbon emissions, mm. um, I'd be saying that's the first step. Yeah. Beyond that, in terms of using it as a storage bank and actually supplying to their home, yeah. um, that will evolve. And I think that evolves through demand. So really what will happen in terms of the market economics, you're really looking at it saying, let's get some vehicles into the Australian population, electric vehicles. Let's build up this demand. Let's build up the infrastructure for charging. Let's have this happen to a point of critical mass where then people say, well, what's the what else can I do with this electric vehicle? Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, the Tesla vehicles are running around with a 90 kilowatt hour, 100 kilowatt hour battery. You know, that's a lot of energy that they've got in their in their battery. Mm. To me, it seems like, well, why wouldn't you offer that as a service or part of your, um, why wouldn't you multi-use that uh, electricity? And then yeah. I've heard all comments about, oh, manufacturers don't want to do that. It's going to be damaging to the battery, blah, blah, blah. I just believe that really it makes a lot of sense. What, what consumer would want to have two batteries of the same size yeah. in their home? when one battery could do all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, just, just given as, as an, as an idea. So a Tesla has got a, let's say hundred kilowatt hour battery. Yeah. How much energy is that in, uh, when you think about the, uh, standard Australian household, how long could they live on a Tesla? Let's put it this way. Well, the average standard home, so a family of four is around 25 kilowatt hours per day. So, that's four days. Four days. Of One Tesla, energy. four days. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot yeah. of storage capacity. Way, way too much, right? For most, possibly for the standard commute, right? So we, it's, yeah, there's uh, a plenty of Yeah, yeah. I think, extra. look, you know, <clears throat> the battery management is the critical part of anything around how, how batteries are used and what sort of life cycle they have. And, um, you know, I guess... This is an evolution of energy trans uh, energy and, and transport. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in these difficult times that we're in, of course, um, we all have plenty of time to think and contemplate where the future might be after yeah. we, uh, you know, see some light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I would like to think that, you know, the brains trust is many smart people out there far smarter than me that would be sitting there thinking, well, how do we turn this application or how do we turn what effectively is a very large storage unit into a multi-purpose um, opportunity? Yeah. And I feel that, you know, I, I hear the stories about hydrogen as a fuel cell and uh, as a potential fuel and, and the fact that it has zero emissions and, you know, it has some fantastic benefits and potentially solar in Australia being such a lucky country in terms of irradiation, we could, of yeah. course, generate enough energy to produce hydrogen as a potential um, export of energy. You know, yeah. there's all these sort of considerations around hydrogen. But what I see in front of me is that batteries in electric vehicles right now kind of makes sense it's a little, it makes a lot more sense than burning diesel or burning um 
any type of uh, fossil fuel. Yeah. So um, I guess, you know, we may evolve in, in this technology is forever evolving. And the purpose of solar initially was to allow people an opportunity to have some control and to, to offer some, uh, um, a way of actually taking back, you know, uh, one of the things that I remember when I was very early into residential solar was that the first question people would ask me is, well, does it work? Um, you know, I guess they, they were probably sick of hearing salespeople saying, you know, you can get this for free and put it on your roof and, you know, it's going to do this, going to do that. And um, really, initially with solar in those early days, one kilowatt really didn't do a lot for people. The size of the system was way too small. Now that we're down, you know, eight years, 10 years down the track, we're really looking at systems that are four or five times larger than this. And then you're looking at something like a car battery for an electric vehicle, which holds that much capacity. And to me, all these numbers are starting to make sense. We're now at a point where you can actually use this. It has value. Um, so I guess, because my wife just walked past. Welcome, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's exciting that we've developed the technology to a point where you can put that much on a roof and the batteries in vehicles are at that capacity. So we're now sort of seeing some things that actually have uh, real, real opportunity to be used and developed a bit more. Yeah. Um, so it, it just, that, uh, yeah, yeah, there you yeah. go. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I'd love to see hydrogen as a format of energy that we could use as well. Um, oh. And I don't think there's any particular technology that's better than others. It's just different fit for purpose. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I think it's exciting times ahead. Uh, it's just that solar is a lot more integrated as part of the package as opposed to standalone by itself. Cause it's really not, it doesn't do everything, but it does some things very yeah. well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, maybe we can, uh, so, so basically you see the future solos, um, the as the costs come down, uh, it's going to be used wide, more widely and widely and, uh, electric vehicles could, uh, fill the gap in the, which solar needs um, due to the fluctuation and bringing, bringing, uh, energy availability to, to the to the rest of the day when there's no sun um, um you mentioned the uh, the hydrogen uh econ economy is that something which is maybe on the agenda of uh, australian politics because it's like uh, i would assume to a certain extent a big big company's business not that small decentralized uh, format um <clears throat> I see that, um, you know, there's been conversations had around hydrogen um, fuel cell development where it's large scale. There's one in WA and there's one in um, uh, Northern Territory, which um, the, the, the conversations are really by large business. Yeah. We're looking at uh, a potential income earners, uh, potential event revenue streams that are really to do with exports. So, We're fortunate in this country that we have a large landmass with a small population and 
very good um, renewable uh, factors in terms of energy generation. So solar and wind is fantastic in Australia. Yeah. Um, the idea that you can capture that energy via converting it to hydrogen mm. uh, is has been discussed for a number of years, but I think I, I, I get the feeling, and this is just a feeling, I can't really put any numbers and figures to it, but that the people that are interested in this space are entrepreneurs that have a long strategy in place, a long game strategy, where they see that if they capture the market early, they could certainly own it. Uh, and um, it's building that technology and the cost in that infrastructure. It's quite high. It's quite expensive to develop these type of products. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've heard the numbers around 10 gigawatt of solar and wind in the WA plant, uh, which would then be converted into uh, hydrogen, uh, yeah. which would then be exported via ship. Now, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in this space, so I'm not really familiar in terms of the cost. But my understanding is that to build these facilities, particularly beyond the solar, the actual hydrogen uh, plant, and then the storage, and then the shipping containers or the, the the ships that need to store this hydrogen, there's billions and billions of dollars that needs to happen before that will take off. Um, yeah. So I see that as where the initial concept will take off. I can't see hydrogen as a, as a fuel cell in someone's car at this point. I have seen, you know, there's been some prototypes that ran around California for a little while. I think Honda made them. Yeah. Um, but because of the costs or of the, let's say, risks of acceptance of by, by, the, by the users or? Uh, I think it's more the, the, my understanding was that in order for hydrogen to be transported, it needs to be um, kept at a fairly low temperature and it needs a fairly high uh, pressure. pressure. Yeah. And to do that in terms of cost, particularly in terms of a small scale into a car or, or anything of that nature is quite high. Now, I don't know if it's ever going to be cost effective. Yeah. Um, perhaps if we get to scale in terms of numbers and people say that this is the way of the future and uh, automotive companies invest billions and whatever to, to develop that technology to a commercial level. Um, I just feel that electric vehicles are a lot further down the track in terms of development as opposed to hydrogen. And really the, where hydrogen fits right now is in the large scale of stored energy um, mm. potential export market for Australia on that basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, also in Germany, there's a, the, the, the government just re released their hydrogen strategy. Um, um, actually three, I do, what, what do you call them? Ministers, uh, secretaries of state, I guess that's what you would call them in the U S There was a big uh, press release, a um, big event, uh, talking about the, the national hydrogen strategy. And uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, there's a lot more, let's say, um, yeah, press awareness for, for hydrogen than for, for solar, right? Um, it, it's like uh, people might be against solar, but they are pro-hydrogen. 
and um, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. I haven't understood it myself why this is the case, right? Because they should harmonize, and uh, if um, and uh, yeah, hydrogen is then also quite often used as the um, a way better solution than uh, the battery storage, right? Which I haven't understood myself either, right? Because as you said, standard ba battery technology, lithium-based uh, uh, technology is, is al already a far way down the track well, in terms of, of costs and uh, proven usability, right? So um, I do assume also that uh, there's other players now involved who want to um, get their uh, safe stake in the in the future energy industry, right? Um, I mean, it's in, to a certain, yeah. So in a, in a way, it's a, it's a big threat for some players, right? I mean, you have these big mm -hmm. uh, coal companies, I would assume, and uh, uranium mining companies in, in in Australia. So you wonder where they end up if if all goes solar, right? Everybody's got his solar uh, system on the roof, and then there's the the car manufacturers, so where do the the standard utilities and mining companies end up, right? Where do they go, right? Is that of course? There's all that, these other interests that involved. these, uh, let's say, conventional energy stakeholders push for hydrogen because it is this big business, it capex business, um, which they can handle, but not the let's say uh, private households or small and medium enterprises. Well, um, I guess what I am seeing, and this is on a larger scale, is uh, companies like Shell, uh, which you would have obviously heard of before, uh, yeah. have moved towards becoming energy providers and yeah. energy owners. They're looking at a vertical chain. So they're looking at it from no longer just one particular type of energy. It's all sources of energy. For them, it's to own the energy platforms. And then they can say, well, we can deliver, transport, produce um, any type of energy. My, and my thoughts will be, it'll be someone like that, that type of company that will look at hydrogen and how the best to, to, to make it cost effective. Um, we do have fossil fuel companies and fossil industry who are hugely influential in terms of government decisions uh, they they have influenced the governments to a point where investment in solar has actually reduced significantly in the large-scale solar side uh, before covid19 there was already a significant drop in in, in investment in large-scale solar in australia i think uh, i recall seeing a number of somewhere around 60% drop in, in investment dollars in Australia for large-scale solar. Uh, and that's in no part, um, it's certainly due to the influences of fossil fuel lobbyists that have encouraged the government to look towards boosting and, and um, really taking away any initiatives and, and incentives for solar investment in Australia yeah. uh, so <clears throat> I guess the one heartening thing I have out of all this and the struggles that we have in this industry in Australia is that the energy transition is occurring on the household perspective people believe it they understand yeah. it so the general population of Australia is very much on board with the idea of renewable energy 
Unfortunately, the larger companies that have very deep pockets and an industry they need to protect um, continue to uh, hinder what is effectively something that will have to happen. Um, You know, there's a lot of emotive positions people take, because particularly when you talk about climate change and the impact of, of carbon emissions on climate change, um, that kind of cloud what is it actually happening in the world. And, you know, if anything, this period of lockdown that we've occurred and the redu- reduction in air travel and um, an overall cleaning of the environment, um, I guess in some ways is, is what we could see if we were all transitioned to renewable mm. as an energy source. Yeah. Um, my, my only fear is that everyone will want to get back to normal as soon as possible once this lockdown is, is finished. So, and yeah. We'll start yeah. seeing, uh, you know, the air is covered in pollution effectively. Yeah. Um, so, I guess from my, my perspective, you know, that is part of the reason why I will continue being in this space for as long as I can is that um, the message needs to get there and we need to continue until transition has occurred um, and we're no longer using fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, so I, I, in some ways, I'm happy that a company like Shell, who has acquired a number of energy providers in Australia and purchased a uh, uh, asset, uh, sorry, uh, solar developers. Um, they've done a number of things actively seeking to become a multi-stream revenue or energy source and provider. And, and uh, because to me, that's showing that they see the future. Yeah. And the future is not fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, they, they've released uh, uh, studies a few years ago where they clearly say within a uh, a few decades few years um solar will be larger than oil right so they do and this is their own data that's their own study so they do clearly see that study but at the same time i've been in pv4 you know since 1993 and shell was even a producer of solar cells uh, at least once if not multiple times so critics say or the you know it, that goes already into a conspiracy theory say um they are in for the wrong reasons right so so and uh, so it's 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 i would definitely say also the energy business there's plenty space for all and um, any money is welcome to to um um, finance and push the the energy transition um but at the same time as you mentioned there's many people who want to save their own stakes their own the old way of doing things right um so it's 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 definitely going to be interesting right so i I'm, i'm super happy to 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 see of course uh uh, shell on board but there's many say who oh i'm i'm scared of that they they are in for the wrong right um you mentioned once the the uh, previously the 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 drop of new solar parks of uh, of 60 percent on a i guess annual basis and that was due to some how does it happen the change in legislation did some actual laws were changed or are oh, just how Right. Well, this is quite a, uh, it takes a little bit of answering, so I hope you don't mind. You have to indulge me with this one. But essentially, 
when I talk about 60% drop or 60% reduction in investments, it's yeah. project developers um, who are out seeking funding for projects that they've been looking to establish in Australia. We have, I guess, the difficulties with energy transition is that the model that occurred before was uh, traditionally based on large power plants, coal-fired yeah. power plants with an infrastructure to support those power plants and then transmit that energy through a grid. On the eastern seaboard of Australia, we have this thing called the National Energy Market, which has the longest single grid infrastructure anywhere in the world. It's, uh, I can't remember the, the kilometres of, of grid infrastructure. It's massive. Um, but highlighted in that was these coal-fired power stations essentially were plugged into this grid to yeah. generate the energy. Since the development of renewable energy and wind and solar has come on board and, and what we have now is we have dispersed energy storage or energy producing plants across Australia, which they need to find a way to inject into the grid. And because the grid is quite antiquated, its, it's design was not built around this new form of, of, of generation. Yeah. Um, we have a regulator, a number of different uh, regulators and authorities and bodies in Australia that manage this grid. Um, within that, we have these restrictions. So what essentially is happening is um, a developer, solar developer is going out there acquiring land saying, this would be great to put a hundred megawatt farm here. They get a lease long-term lease with the, with the landowner then they go through what's called a development approval process where they'll go through local council design engineering they'll go through apply to um, AMO uh, for connection so there's a lot of work in this thousands of hours and many dollars uh, engineering design all that work to effectively build a plant yeah. now because this infrastructure is so is is quite outdated. Um, many of these plots of land that um, the developers have found are not in. They, they may have a, a connection point which is to a high voltage line that's not far from there to reduce the cost of connection. But the actual strength of that grid or that line is questionable. At best and we're having this problem in one area called the Western Murray region of Victoria New South Wales so it's it's on the border uh, the transmission lines that actually uh, transport that energy have quite a lot of redundant they're, they're not strong uh, and what's happened is that we have a bottleneck of legislation and uh, delays in connection for those particular projects. Mm. So um, one of the plants that we're dealing with, there's five plants, just to give you an example, there's five plants in this region that had their curtailed, they were curtailed to 50% of their production because AMO had to do some studies to actually work out how to support those plants after they'd already been built. Mm. So which really impacted the investors because now they were looking at a model 
which instead of having 100% production, they're at 50%. They've got no choice. They have to wait until they got approval. And it happened on Friday. They could now produce 100% of their energy. Problem with this, that's just one side of it, okay? So that's the the actual logistics and the actual grid infrastructure and getting into uh, allowing you to connect into this grid. We also have a government that does not incentivize um, investment in solar. They spend billions of dollars in invest in, in rebates and, and government uh, initiatives to encourage coal or fossil fuel. What but they reduce there's yeah. still high investors, uh, government or public money going into coal. Yeah, coal or plants. there may be tax offsets or, yeah. or any number of ways to encourage investment in this in this space because okay. they see it. For them, they have a you know a vested interest with the lobbyists and the money that they get given uh, to them. Um, the other side of this is this grid being what it is. Um, the infrastructure is not strong enough to support these type of uh, farms on a consistent level. They also have this thing called MLF, which is marginal loss factors. So you build a farm 500 kilometers away from um, the nearest large energy user, for instance. Uh, And maybe that's a small town or a a medium-sized town. Um, there is a calculation that um, the regulators had used to um, say that if you produced 100% at your site, by the time it reached that point of destination, the MLF could be up to 20% yeah. loss. So you've modelled your business on 100% production or 90% production, whatever it might be. You then have to factor in that whatever this arbitrary number is that um, has been calculated, you then have to assume that that's all you will earn or the amount of energy you'll be able to um, uh, redeem is 80% of the total. Um, So these are the factors that really encourage people not to look at um, investing in Australia. The other side of this is we've had in the large-scale side of the business or industry, there's been a number of EPCs. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with an EPC is, an engineering procurement company. So they construction. Yeah. They do the project. So a developer may get the funding and the permissions and the land. Then they'll engage a contract with an EPC to build it. Mm-hmm. Um, the EPCs, uh, in the last few years, a number of them have gone out of business uh, simply because the margins weren't there and they didn't cost or didn't quote the, the project correctly. And one of the risks that they were taking on was the connection. So in order to get their payments at the end, they'd have to say that they could get the project connected. So the actual connection of the project is quite a significant process and because of the poor infrastructure you will find that these sites some of the sites and there's there's a number of sites that have been completed that are not yet connected in australia so um 
And that's a technical uh, issue or an administration issue to get this these large projects. Connected? It's a technical issue. Yeah. It's a technical issue. It's getting permission through the regulators to say that yes, you will be able to be connected. So AMO need to do their testing to allow you to actually connect to the grid. Um, but that happens at the end of the project when you, when you construct it because you can model all you want, but until you've actually built the site and then actually turned it on, um, you still don't have permission to actually generate or export to the grid. Okay. So that risk has, has seen us uh, a couple of um, APCs go to the wall um, because they actually, until they've connected, they're losing money. Yeah. Um, um, but but so AMO delays the process that or the, the technical um, connection or what's so I mean you, I'm sure you could technically understand it's like a I don't know 10 megawatts you want to connect you know precisely what the kind kind of voltage and currents you've got and what kind of inverter you require transformers. Um, so, so where's the the risk? Where's the, if it's a technical issue, what's the, the problem? It's, it's, uh, is it, it's a yeah. delay by the administration or? Um... Well, just, just to use the example of the five sites that they were curtailed yeah. to 50%. So these sites have been built and we're operating at full capacity. And then AMO in their wisdom realized that the load on the grid was creating some, um, uh, stability issues and yeah. they immediately curtailed those five sites. Um, what's had to happen since then is that the five sites for fortuitous reasons had the one inverter manufacturer on those five sites, which is SMA. Yeah. SMA did some modeling for, um, and it's taken months, um, did some modeling for AMO to enable them to see that they could actually manage the sites and reduce this risk that they saw in stability in the grid for them to say, yes, we'll turn you back on. This modeling that occurs for connection, um, even though they've done all the modeling beforehand, when they go through what's called GPS, this modeling for connection is the one that is the stumbling block. And there's no way anybody could have modeled for what AMO did and curtailed those five sites for 50%. Um, that's because unfortunately there's a lack of communication between uh, developers, AMO, the grid, who's putting what into where, how many people are actually putting injecting energy into that particular zone or region. Um, so all those factors create a lot of confusion and doubt. So yeah. if you're an investor and someone said to you, okay, well, <clears throat> you could invest something in Europe, 100 megawatt. Yeah. You could get a PPA for this amount and the connection would be stable. Or you could invest in Australia. But you don't know if you can connect, yeah. You don't know if you can connect. Your rates are fairly low for PPAs. They're not fantastic here. Um, 
and there's high risk that you won't even get your full return on your asset. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, that's the thing. It's a global market. Solar is a global market. So and the money goes where it's, uh, you have a low risk, right? Yeah. I think this brings me back to a point that you raised earlier about, you know, these type of large companies getting involved in renewables, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And really the problem, or when I put my finance hat on, I understand that it's not about renewables. It's got nothing to do with renewables. It's about the opportunity, the LCOE, the levelized cost of energy, yeah. but the profit The risk and the profit is what businesses of that nature look for. Yeah. So for them to turn around and say, well, we're now energy agnostic. We'll take on any sort of energy. Yeah. No, they won't take on any sort of energy. They'll take on energy sources that make them money. Yeah. And that's, that's what we have to deal with. I don't think that's a bad thing in the context that as a, as a marketplace, by getting people like the companies like Shell and the like involved in investing in renewables, it, it, it affirms for them that this is an area of revenue and it sort of encourages that type of growth and investment. Mm. Um, if I had a magic wand, I would be looking in Australia to change the structure around energy markets, allowing a lot more investment and managing it a lot better and having a, uh, a, a stronger government actually managing it. Yeah. Um, because this is uh, an opportunity that we're actually delaying yeah. in our transition. Yeah. So for, for Australia, you would really see um, the need of uh, a change in, in policies, uh, pulling down uh, admin barriers, um, creating the mindset in these authorities to to bring solar in Australia to the to the next level is, is that correct? Uh, well, at, at a high level, of course, you know. I mean, uh, I don't have anything except an opinion. So, sure, sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it's you know, from my perspective. But you have a yeah, yeah. long good good experience, hands-on experience on on what the solar energy market is like in Australia. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like um, I feel the energy transition is something that if it was taken on a national level by a government body that actually had wasn't politically driven and was able to have the power to generate or to make change, that would be a huge thing for Australia. And, and I see uh, and, and perhaps I'm misreading things that are happening, but I think with this virus that's occurred with COVID-19, you hear a lot of reports about people saying globalization doesn't work. This is what's happened because of globalization. And, you know, the, the world is a different place now. Um, I look at it and think, well, if that's the case, food security, energy security for your country would be as important as border control because you would then be thinking, well, We need to be self-sufficient. We need to be making sure we generate enough energy and we have enough internally to, to make our country work. Mm. Um, and if it, 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 it sort of sounds socialist or something, I guess, but when I say that there should be a government body that is in control of this at a level 
that is non-political and it's more about those essential securities, um, we would see change happen a lot faster. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, what I see, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I mean, Australia could easily be self-sufficient, right? Um, Energy-wise, right? With that much of sunlight and wind, right? And Absolutely. technology. I, yeah. I really see that we could be, you know, if the borders are opened again, I could see us being an exporter of energy. We have yeah. that much resources, natural resources here in Australia that our position as an energy provider and energy, energy positive in the world would be um, quite strong. Yeah. Um, But what I see happening, and I think it's really more consumer driven, is that we have a high uptake of solar on households and a high uptake in commercial and uh, you know, international investment into solar in large scale. What I would like to see is that we have the same push into electric vehicles uh, for transport. Yeah. Um, And I would really like to see government incentives in that. Yeah. That would drive, I guess, what I was talking about in terms of our use of energy storage. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I feel that's an easier path to take than trying to convince a government that's so anti um, climate change. Uh, I think if they were just to incentivize a little bit on electric vehicles, we'd be in a much better place. Yeah, excellent. Um, but this is now uh, really, uh, I mean, the logical next question for me would be uh, the politicians are only the ones who are elected by the, by the people, right? So uh, if, if, if all the Australians are so pro or many are pro solar, why? Or do you have this kind of policies and policy makers? Yeah. So it's a tough question, I know, but I, I, it just sits there, this question. And so uh, I, I look, I think. Bring it out. Yeah. I, I think the reason why, uh, and it's been reviewed a number of times, I guess the last election was won by the Liberals when they didn't think they would win the election. It was a lot to do with <laughs> people's perception of the opposition party and the risk of taking on such a wide and varied policy change. Um, but I think they narrowed it down in terms of the reason why the Liberals got in was more about the marketing of a perception, nothing to do with climate change. The vote was not about climate change. In the end, it was about people's pensions and super funds and things that might be impacted by this uh, Labor Party, the, the opposition coming in. Uh, so it was really decided by something that had nothing to do with climate change. I think if you asked people in Australia on a Vox Pop type, you know, interview, you would find that um, Particularly now, we had these bushfires throughout November, December, which impacted huge amounts of land. And um, I'm not sure if you saw it in Europe, but yeah, yeah, everybody. It wasn't in the in the press, in in the in, on TV, like every night. Yeah, yeah, and, and living through it, and only from a metropolitan city, I, 
you had this dense smoke in the air continually, um, which it, it, it had a, an effect on people in, in Australia that we wanted to see something done about it. You know, there was early warnings about the bushfire occurring and the mismanagement of uh, policies around how to um, minimise fire risk, um, also the funding around fires and bushfires. And, and, and the question came up, well, why have we had the hottest summer and why we had droughts and, and you know it was all related back to climate change a lot of that came back and said well this is the result of increased temperatures across the globe mm. we're having much higher uh, uh, hotter summers and higher risk in bushfires yeah now had we not had COVID-19 come through in the last you know eight weeks ten weeks we may have seen a very different outlook in terms of what was happening and the momentum around change for climate change in Australia, mm -hmm. because I felt like it was a it was not the management of that in terms of the government was a little bit poor. The representation around how they managed the bushfires, and I feel that there was a little bit of a negative press about that yeah. and it, was, it could have provided some impetus to change climate at that point mm. um, but I honestly think that our biggest issue in, in, in this country and it comes back to the initial question why do we still have the same government in place is that as much as we care about our, our, our climate and our country um, we also care about what's in our wallet and sure. what someone is prepared to do to take our money from our wallet or our quality of life and how yeah. it could be impacted. So the decision to vote in Liberal as opposed to the opposition was more about financial risk. Yeah. And, um, I feel that if we had our time again and we had a different outcome, perhaps we'd still be here. Yeah, you know, in this space, COVID nineteen, right? Yeah. So, um, I feel like right now, um, it's not really relevant that we have a negative government in place. It's that beyond this government, and we've still got another two years of them in power. Um, we have to keep. Uh, we just have to keep going. You know, yeah. I, I I can't vote them out. There won't be an election for another two years. Yeah. And, and um, do I understand you correctly? You, so you think that uh, there was a positive impetus from the bushfires towards solar, but then uh, COVID-19, you, you could possibly, this is a pushback of, let's say, uh, a broader move to, to renewables in, in Australia? Because, I mean, this is actually also being discussed in, uh, in Germany and I guess all over the place that uh, now possibly uh, more people are bothered about um, yeah, bringing up the economy, bringing up the economy, uh, do the conventional thing rather than uh, care, yeah. to care more, uh, to keep caring about... Uh, uh, climate change. Yeah. Uh, look, Torsten, I, I feel that um, 
we are. I don't think we've ever had this economic situation occur globally, yeah. and you know, people do worry about their security in terms of income and you know whether they'll have enough food on the table for their family. And yeah. this this current government has certainly. Um, provided quite a lot of resources around supporting people through this period. They have a timeline, six months. Um, but what happens after six months in terms of a return of some sort of economy and how we actually get to, to a point where people are comfortable again? Um, mm. I, I, I guess the only thing I see happening right now is that simply by the fact that we're in lockdown and people aren't doing the same stuff that they were doing before in terms of consumerism and, and driving and transport and overseas holidays and a lot of that won't come back that quickly. Uh, so we, we still have opportunities for climate change to, to, to be benefit, uh, to, to have some benefit right now mm. in terms of solar. Um, I, I, I think that our investment strategies and long-term investment into solar farms, that won't change anytime soon. I think that'll be at least another 18 months or two years before you'll see some, and we, um, we'll need some government assist, uh, assistance with that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's, I think you're right, Torsten, that this is really not the time for people to concentrate on climate as much as we would like them to and to concentrate on solar. Um, everyone will be racing towards how do we fix what we have a problem with. Yeah. Uh, that's generally the economy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Yeah, there, there's a few voices who say, actually, um, the real... Um, political decision would be now to because we there will be a lot of money poured into the uh, let's say economy whatever that you know uh, is government money and uh, you might as well spend it on something which has a, a future so you might as well spend that money on it, into the energy transition rather than uh, supporting the let's say conventional way of doing things um, yeah. but I guess uh, we'll we will see uh, one day and um, um, that, that's that's yet to come, right? So it's a, it's an open race. So uh, yeah. there's no answer for that, right? So this, yeah. this is the thing. There is no right answer. There is no wrong answer. It is unfortunately a situation where we're all stumbling through it, and there's no set time either in terms of okay, let's just assume that they ease restrictions now. Is there a risk of a second wave of infection? Yes, there is a risk. Will that mean they'll lock down again? And how can we afford this? The question I hear from a number of different people is, well, we're spending all this money to stimulate or maintain people in jobs or not jobs or um, yeah. what, what's going to happen after this? How is this? I mean, I don't think there'll be a lot of money in the bank, in the government's kitty at the end of it. I think they'll be thinking, right, well, I've spent, in Australia, it's about $180 billion, uh, maybe even more. Um, mm. 
on incentive packages, job seeker and job keeper. Um, for the long term, for the for those that have been immediately unemployed through this virus. Beyond that, I have not heard anything from any government person saying, well, we're going to do this to rebuild the economy. It's not yeah. about rebuilding the economy now. It's just keeping people afloat. So there's not enough, there's not financial stress to the point where, you know, we have a, a massive collapse of, of, of the industry and, and the economy. So, yeah. Um, I agree with you. If we encouraged investment, it's not even actually putting government money into investment. It's oh, it would be private money, right? Yeah. yeah. Private money, providing them with opportunities to build plants into areas where we all understand that the coal-fired plants have got a life cycle, which I think is between 30 to 50 years that they're all being decommissioned. Hmm. problem we have is that everyone's saying 30 years is too long to continue with coal-fired generated plants in the world. Yeah. CO2 emissions. Yeah. Australia's, and the, the, you know, the st statistic that can be interpreted a number of ways is that we only have 1.5% of the total emissions in the world coming out of Australia. On a per capita basis, that's really too high. And then if you include the exports of fossil fuels, coal to China and other countries, it's another 3%. It's, it's a lot mm. for a small nation of 25 million people. Yeah. Um, so in an ideal world, get rid of coal, yeah. get rid of coal fired power stations, do something else. It doesn't have yeah. to be solar. I'd love it to be solar. It could yeah. be wind, it could be hydrogen, it could be another. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I don't think anyone's thinking about it right now, yeah. except you. <laughs> and then having <laughs> this chat. <laughs> yeah. You just started a party. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, you know, I. Uh, I'm glad we've had this this discussion around different areas of solar in Australia. Yeah. I don't think it's that dissimilar from other countries. No, 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 no. Transition. It's it's exactly the same situation over here. Yeah, it's uh, in in Germany and I, I guess in, in in most economies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have our own regulations that make it difficult, yeah. and certainly have impacted the investment in large scale. Yeah. But the benefit is that as, uh, as consumers and businesses see the benefit and it's a, it's a financial benefit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah. when I, I look at solar for a large, you know, for a manufacturer or, or anyone that has energy requirements, their paybacks on, on solar is less than four years. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is quite a reasonable return. Yeah. Um, considering you don't get anything for putting money in a bank for zero interest or whatever, yeah. it's better than doing that. And the government has put incentives in place for tax write-offs for businesses to encourage them to purchase things. And I would be yeah. encouraging people to purchase solar because yeah. they can write it off straight away. 
Yeah. Excellent. Hey, Simon. Um, so the good part, and I guess you, you also try to do that, uh, is uh, there's no basically no no technical barrier for for solar and renewables at this stage, right? Um, it's it's super attractive. Um, the, the technology works. Um, if if the conditions are right, we can uh, um, see big growth in uh, in the usage of of solar. Um, you made an interesting point with the uh, electric vehicles being as an intermediate storage uh, um, well, vehicle in in a literal sense. Um, yeah, and uh, we we all don't know how how COVID uh, is is impacting the, the the economy and the social life in in general, but in particular also how how the renewables will move forward after or yeah with with COVID or after COVID. And uh, this is all yet to be seen. Um, I, I took so many notes where I uh, wanted to touch ground with like uh, like conventional solar stuff, like what's a PPA and what is OEM and what are the challenges there. Um, but uh, we we moved in a in a pretty cool, interesting area. Uh, um, nonetheless, maybe you're interested in covering uh, these grounds. Uh, in, in a later session, maybe a few weeks, months down the road, and then we will see uh, also uh, how, how the... Austin, if you want me to talk again, I'm happy to. Um, yeah. How the COVID-19 situation to... turned out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's not hard. You just tell me what to... Uh, you ask a question, I just keep talking. So uh, yeah. I've taken up too much of your time. Sorry no, about no. that. No, 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 no. All cool, yeah. Hey, Simon, thanks a lot for your uh, thoughts and ideas and opinions. Very much yeah, appreciate it. Welcome. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me, and yeah. uh, look forward to speaking again when, uh, perhaps, when this is over and we're at the other end, and you ask me the same questions, I can give you a different answer. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, right. Simon. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right, no problems. Thank you, yeah. Torsten. Yeah, stay safe. Okay. Bye bye.